0: All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're gonna study God's word together. So if you'd open up your Bible to the book of Acts chapter eight. All right, so where we're going this morning is basically just picking up where we left off. When we started studying the book of Acts in the fall, we got to the end of chapter seven and the early goings, the first few verses of chapter eight. In case you don't remember what was going on there, I'll kind of prompt and jog your memory what happened in chapter seven is uh, Stephen became the first Christian martyr. He proclaims the, the story of Israel that centers on Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and they stoned him to death right there. And you see at the end of chapter seven, the beginning of chapter eight, that there's a man named Saul. We're gonna meet him later by the name of the apostle Paul. But for now, he's holding the coats of the people who were throwing the rocks. At Stephen, and that creates this violent persecution against Christians right there in Jerusalem, which then scatters them. They, they go scattering and they're looking for refuge in other neighboring places and cities, and that leads them to Samaria where we pick up the story in verse four. Acts chapter eight, verse four. We're gonna read Acts chapter eight as we move along. I'm not gonna read the whole passage right now, but beginning in verse four, if you'd follow along. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. If you're reading through the Gospels, for example, part of the scandal of Jesus' life and ministry is he went to people who had been told, God wants nothing to do with you. And he said, no, actually I do. I want to be near to you. I want to bring you near. He says to a Samaritan woman in John chapter four, he walks up to a well and there's a Samaritan woman who's there, this woman has a troubled past And Jesus says, the Father's seeking worshipers and you're gonna be one of them. (laughs) It's the upshot of what happens. You're, You're invited into the worship of God, the worship that will happen in spirit and in truth, not on Mount Gerizim or in Mount Zion, but wherever worshipers worship him in spirit and truth, you are welcome, right? Jesus would tell a story, a parable, about a master of a feast. And the master sends out invitations and he's got this list of guests who were invited to the feast and when the invitations go out from the master, the people who were on the invite list said there was something else that they were more interested in doing that particular evening. And so then the master hears that they didn't want to come to the feast and he says, then go out into the streets and bring the poor, the maimed, the blind and the lame so that my house may be filled. It was God Drawing the outcasts from from the margins and bringing them into his house. In a way, Acts chapter 8 is really that parable unfolding. Stephen, essentially at the end of chapter 7, rebukes the religious elites in Jerusalem because they rejected Messiah's invitation to the feast and they killed him for talking about how we had rejected the invitation of the Messiah. And then the very next verse, what you see is believers, including Philip, giving out kingdom invites to moral outcasts, so all these, the reason I'm I'm calling the sermon boundaries is all the boundary lines are being redrawn. The boundary lines for who's in and who's out are being redrawn starting right here in Acts chapter eight. The first category you see is the outliers. And what's happening is there's the undoing of an old hostility. So in the foreground of the verses that we just read, We see Philip preaching to Samaritans and the Samaritans believe and then they end up being baptized. They put their trust in Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. They believe Philip's proclamation about the Messiah. So that's kind of straightforward. That's what's going on in the foreground. That's very evident. What's going on underneath that is something deeper, right? There's this long history of hatred, uh, a thousand year beef between Jews and Samaritans deep, deep hostility and animosity between these groups of people. And so just so we can pick up on what's going on in Old Testament history that leads to this hostility between these people, right, is, is the Jews and what became the Samaritans used to be part of one big happy family, And that big happy family was called the nation of Israel. And it was divided into 12 tribes. 12 tribes, all the sons of Jacob, sons of Israel. And those 12 tribes were all ruled in one big united kingdom. They were all under Davidic king, King David himself, and then sons in the line of David. So here's backstory if you're taking notes. The United Kingdom in Israel fractured after King Solomon. And the northern tribes installed their own non-Davidic kings and made Baal worship the state religion. So I'm not going to review the whole story of what happened back there. But again, about a thousand years before Acts 8, there's this huge family feud, this huge massive schism, this fight, family fight. And the 10 tribes of Israel from the north said to the other two remaining tribes, and they said, we're done with you. We're done with your Davidic kings. Uh, you can have it. You can have the dynasty of David. We're gonna go find some kings of our own. We're gonna do our thing up here in the north. You do your thing down there in the south. We're gonna build our own temple. You can have the temple. You can have the holy city. We have no interest in all of that. 10 tribes, all of these families, this huge portion of Israel is going to carve out a new space up here in the north. And the northern kings, the line of the kings that were endorsed in the northern kingdom, what did they do? They built a brand new headquarters and they said the new capital city for us, northern kingdom is gonna be where? Samaria. And they said, by the way, we're not gonna to travel to Jerusalem to do your whole worship thing. We're gonna worship in our own way right here. And they put a temple to Baal in guess what city? Samaria, right in this very city. They're choosing new lines of kings. They're worshiping Baal in the city of Samaria. And in the Old Testament, God comes after the northern kingdoms and he sends prophets to basically say, turn around. There, there's no life serving false gods. Turn around and follow follow Yahweh, follow your God. And, and the Old Testament kind of gave a name to the 10 northern tribes of Israel, and the name was Ephraim. Because Ephraim was one of the tribes in the north, and so Ephraim, the name, be- became a placeholder for God speaking to the entire 10 tribes in the north. Ephraim was God's wayward son and if you listen to the prophets who are writing in the Old Testament you can hear God speaking to Ephraim and that's him singling out and saying 10 northern tribes come back to me if you've ever known uh, someone who walked away from the Lord and you wonder how God feels about it you listen to God talking about Ephraim and you learn something about grace Here's an Old Testament text where God is speaking about Ephraim, his son, the 10 wayward tribes. Isn't Ephraim a precious son to me? A delightful child. Whenever I speak against him, so words of discipline, I certainly still think about him. Therefore, God says, my inner being yearns for Ephraim. I will truly have compassion on him. This is the Lord's declaration. So that's God talking, ruminating about his relationship with his wayward son. He would go on and uh, in the book of Hosea chapter 11, God would say, how can I give you up Ephraim? My compassion is stirred. I will not turn back to destroy you. I will not come in rage. You will follow the Lord. Ephraim will follow the Lord. So there are Old Testament prophecies about a new day for the 10 tribes that had gone apostate in the Old Testament. God would, here's what the prophecy said, basically. God would reunite 12 tribes under one Davidic king again. It had been that way before. It would be that way again in the future. And disputes over holy mountains. They had set up a holy mountain in Gerizim. And the holy mountain in the south was in Jerusalem. Disputes over holy mountains would be replaced by worship in spirit. And in truth, God would speak through the prophet Ezekiel about Ephraim and the relationship between the north and the south. And he would say this, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will rule over all of them. They will no longer be two nations and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And if you're looking for where that prophecy is fulfilled, look no further than the text right underneath your finger in Acts chapter eight. That is the... The conversion of the Samaritans isn't just a great day for a city that needed the gospel. It it is that, but it's deeper and it's more. The conversion of the Samaritans tells us God chased Ephraim, his prodigal son, for a thousand years and never tired. God came running after Ephraim up hill and down dale for a thousand years until he finally caught him. In Acts chapter eight, you think about your own life wherever you are in your relationship with God. Maybe you've given God a thousand reasons to run the other way, but God still yearns to bring you near, to bring Ephraim's runaways, prodigals near. If there was ever a child, God could have justly written off that child's name was Ephraim. Ephraim. And what we see here in Acts chapter eight is Ephraim's sins, they were many, but God's mercy was more. Boundaries are being redrawn. The outliers are being pursued. Second, the enchanted. What's going on here? Unseating a rival throne. Look down in verse nine, or it's gonna be on the screen. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city And amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him, that is Simon, because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So there's something that's happening here. We're gonna see it even as we continue reading in Acts 8 in just a moment. But here's kind of the big idea of the movement of the passage. Luke sets gospel success and gospel resistance side by side. So there's gospel success. There was great joy in the city. All these people are believing. Lots of people are getting baptized. They're being added to the church, right? But verse nine takes you back to the moment before the gospel came to Samaria. So verses four to eight is kind of, here's what happened. Thumbnail sketch, trailer of the whole movie. And then verse nine says, let's go back to the moment before Philip arrived and started proclaiming the gospel. And what's going on there? And it tells you what's going on there is the Samaritan people are under the influence of a sorcerer named Simon. And they actually don't even call him Simon anymore. They call him the great power of God. And then verse 12 brings us up to speed with the story, right? Philip comes, he proclaims the good news about the kingdom of God and the name that is the greatness of the the high name of Jesus Christ. And men and women, he says, were baptized. So you see the movement there. It even uses the word amazed and pivots on the word amazed. Before they were amazed, you see in the text, by Simon's sorcery and then we're told Simon himself was, quote, amazed at the signs and great miracles being performed by Philip. So there's this this sense of rising amazement at where true power is located and the tension that builds in the story goes something like this a demonic supernatural power rules over the region until a superior power arrives. Just notice though, signs and wonders don't just happen with the gospel people. Signs and wonders were happening with the sorcerers. Right, so there's there's a sense in which if you're just following the miracles, you could be deeply confused about what's really happening and where true power is. So signs and wonders are happening through Simon, but those signs under Simon only deepened their blindness to the truth. There were signs, can't argue with that, but those signs deepened their blindness to the truth. I love this clarifying statement from Patrick Schreiner who writes a commentary in the book of Acts. He writes, this echoes stories like Moses versus the Egyptian sorcerers. And it echoes stories like Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. If Philip is the true prophet in the mold of Moses, then Simon is a false prophet in the mold of the Egyptian sorcerers. Simon corrupts understanding of God while Philip provides clarity. Can I just remind us, friends, let's not be duped by the mere presence of miracles. Wherever they might show up, let's not be duped by that. Realize... True gospel power isn't manifested at the expense of gospel clarity. You say that again. True gospel power is not manifested at the expense of gospel clarity. And there is no doubt that true gospel power is in the works and is experienced by these Samaritans in this text. So proof that the Jerusalem-Samaria boundary was obliterated by Jesus in our passages, the spirit comes down with undeniable power on Samaritan believers. That's proof that the boundaries are being redrawn. And you see this this power come down from the Holy Spirit in verse 14, follow along in God's word. It says, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. So two apostles are being sent from Jerusalem to come see what's happening. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John, the apostles, laid their hands on them and the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. Notice this, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, He offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have, note these words because we'll come back and see them, no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible your heart's intent may be forgiven for I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So one of the things that's often creates confusion and disagreement and dispute about Acts chapter eight is the question of why do the apostles have to come lay their hands in order for the Holy Spirit to fall upon these Samaritans? They had already believed the good news of Jesus Christ. Philip was right there. Philip was working miracles five minutes ago. Why doesn't Philip extend his hand and pray and the Holy Spirit lands on the Samaritan people? The, the apostles need to come because they are official witnesses of something that's gonna be really hard for a lot of people to believe in coming days. It's gonna be really hard for people to swallow the idea that Samaritans of all people have been fully brought into the new covenant family and they stand on level ground at the foot of the cross with everybody else. That's hard to believe because the family members from the north, those 10 tribes of the north, they've been skipping church for 900 years, right? They, uh, they set up their own altars to Baal in Samaria. They made Samaria the new plate. They've been singing hymns to Baal for almost a thousand years, right? More recently, they aren't enamored. They haven't been enamored with Yahweh. They've been enamored with the sorcerer. They renamed him the great power of God, right? So that's shocking. That's surprising. It's like the spirit won't come on that part of the family. Some are gonna really struggle to believe that. They're gonna struggle to believe the spirit was poured out on the branch of the family tree where all the heretics are. That's kind of the, the uniqueness and the skepticism that might be attached to this. And so it's gonna be really important in coming days for the apostles, Peter and John, two of the, the biggest heavyweights in the New Testament, followers of Jesus, for Peter and John to say, listen, we were there. We saw, we held out our hands and prayed They had heard the gospel. We held out our hands and prayed and the Spirit did exactly for them what the Spirit did for you in Jerusalem. Power from the Spirit came down on the Samaritan believers and we saw exactly the same reception of the Spirit in Samaria as we saw in Jerusalem. You talk about a coming of age moment for John, for example. You go back into the pages of the Gospels and you remember John, this this same John who is here, Years earlier, Jesus said, I'm sending out messengers. I want you all to go different places. And he sends uh, James and John to a city in Samaria. And James and John go and they say, hey, let's prepare a place because the gospel of the kingdom is going to be proclaimed here. And they said, we don't want the gospel of the kingdom. No thanks. Move on. Up the road you go. And James and John, this same John, walk up to Jesus. And guess what they asked Jesus to do? Nuke the Place. Right? Could we could we do kind of old school Sodom and Gomorrah style, like just make this place as though it never existed? Would you enable us to pray and their words, call down fire on this city of Samaria? And of course the answer was a stern no from Jesus. He says the answer is no. Well, you fast forward to Acts chapter eight, and again, coming of age, because there is fire that comes down from heaven on Samaria. But it's not the fire that James and John were asking for. It's not the fire of judgment. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's the same fire that hovered above the heads of the disciples in the upper room when the Spirit blew through the upper room and changed everybody's lives and ushered in the new covenant. And now Samaria got their own Pentecost. The fire of the Spirit came blazing through and true Israel's united again under great king the final Davidic king, Jesus Christ, and now the one reunited people of God, north and south, can bear witness to the nations, the Gentiles in coming days of who the Messiah is. It's an amazing story, a shocking story, because even Simon the sorcerer, we're told, believes and is baptized. So what do we make of that? Here's a guy who's offering money for power tricks, And a moment ago, he just went into the water. He might be still dripping wet from the waters of baptism in this moment. But but Luke tells us, notice in verse 13, Simon followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed what? The signs and great miracles that were being performed. And then you keep reading. And when the spirit falls through the laying on of the hands of the apostles and the spirit falls on Samaria, Luke, the narrator, lets you watch Simon reach for his wallet. And he comes out and he says, how much? And Peter says, for what? And he says, the incantation, whatever, you know, give me. I've bought tricks all over the place, magic tricks. How do I buy this one and how much do you require? And Peter needs to bring him up to speed and say, the power of God isn't for sale. You, that's not how this works. It's not available to the highest bidder. But Peter says, you have no portion or inheritance. He's evoking words that had been spoken centuries earlier by Nehemiah. Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall after the people of God had been apostate for centuries and Nehemiah comes back and the people wanna resettle and they wanna build the wall back around Jerusalem and Nehemiah tells Israel's biggest bullies, Israel's primary oppressors and he says, hey, listen, by the way, guys, you're out. Nehemiah says, we fixed the gates around Jerusalem and you're gonna be on the outside and Tobiah and Sanballat, they said, we're on the outside, but we've got a key. We'll just use the key. And Nehemiah says, basically, we've changed the locks. So you're going to be on the outside. You, and what Nehemiah said in the 5th century BC are these words. You have no portion or inheritance. And Peter uses the exact same phrase with Simon. The same gospel that breaks boundaries also draws them. God is drawing a boundary about who's in and who's out. The spirit really reveals Simon's true motives to Peter. Verse 21, Peter says, your heart is not right before God. It's actually, literally, it says your heart is not, it's the Hebrew word for straight. Your heart is not straight. Again, it's evoking language from the Old Testament. The wilderness generation was called a crooked generation. And he's basically saying, we've seen crooked before, and now I'm looking at it again. Your heart's not straight. Your heart's crooked before God. This statement from Robert Tannehill I find helpful. He writes, whenever religion is used to make its leaders seem great and powerful, and whenever religion becomes a commodity by serving the interest of those who have or want money, it has become Corrupt. So, what everybody wants to know, the million dollar question is, was Simon a believer or not? I think by leaving Simon's future open, Luke urges his audience to think carefully on Simon. Don't judge too quickly the Simons of the world. Jesus would say earlier, he gives a parable of the soils. Seed is sown in a number of different places, a number of different kinds of soil. Sometimes fruit seems to spring up from a soil, but give it a minute and keep watching and see if the true fruit remains. Time will tell. Time will show where the true fruit is. I think that's what Luke is kind of, as a narrator, kind of saying watch. So should we give praise when people go down into the waters of baptism and profess faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, hallelujah, and wait and see. Hallelujah, and time will tell. Determining Simon's status as a believer or not, I think is not the main point of this section of Acts chapter 8. I think the main point is the ascended Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. And he is large and in charge everywhere he and his gospel is proclaimed. The expanding boundaries of the kingdom of God can't be hindered by the violent oppression of Saul and the Jerusalem's religious elite, and it can't be hindered by the overhyped powers of Samaritan's sorcery. One of the best, I think, consolations for the original church in the book of Acts was this reminder that Christ's kingdom is unstoppable. Nobody will be able to stop the movement of Christ's kingdom. So the outliers undoing an old hostility, the enchanted unseating a rival throne, and the untouchables, Unlocking the holy place. Verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He, so this Ethiopian eunuch, Had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home. So he's kind of bumping along three miles an hour, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. And the Spirit told Philip, Go and join the chariot, pull up alongside. Verse 30. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading happened to be (laughs) Isaiah 53. He's reading these words. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, Who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And so he ordered the chariot to stop And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch did not see him any longer but went on his way rejoicing. And so we have joy at the beginning of Acts 8 and joy at the end of Acts 8. Philip appeared in Azotus and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So we learn that this man is Ethiopian. The Bible often refers to Ethiopia as the region of Cush, So the Cushites, the people in that area, you keep reading in verse 27, again, you just notice this Ethiopian eunuch had come to worship in Jerusalem. He's just coming back from having worshiped in Jerusalem and he's sitting in his chariot on the way home. So again, to put all this together, he hails from the pagan world of Cush, but he's interested He's a worshiper of the God of Israel, and he's taken the trouble to obtain himself a copy of an Isaiah scroll, which would have costed a ton of money, massive amount of money that he would have invested to get this. It's not like they had a life way on every corner and just, hey, you want a copy of this or a copy of that? We got books, we got books, you know, we got Bibles. Uh, No, you had to pay a ton of money to get a copy uh, of the scroll of Isaiah, and he had obtained it. And so he has this Jerusalem travel, which would have involved him going about 1,000 miles from Cush. So he's traveling 1,000 miles to worship there in the temple. And really, the Old Testament accommodated this kind of reality. You could be from Ethiopia and worship the God of Israel at the temple. Converts to Judaism, proselyte. Baptism was available for them. The nations were allowed to come, albeit a little bit at a distance. There's a court of the Gentiles, but you could still come. You can come to the temple. There's an area actually designated for you to come and join in the worship of God's people and celebrate Passover and so forth. But even though his ethnicity didn't prevent him from worshiping at the temple, his sexual brokenness did. He was a eunuch and eunuchs were ceremonially unclean irrevocably ceremonially unclean. You'll never be clean enough to enter into the presence of God. Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Old Testament law said, quote, no one who is emasculated is allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. So why does this guy travel a thousand miles to come worship at a temple that stiff arms him as soon as he gets there? Acts 8 is redrawing The boundaries and the wideness of God's mercy is surprising. It's even scandalous. The main thing that makes this guy an outsider in worship in Jerusalem isn't his Cushiteness. It's his eunuchness, which is why Luke says five times, the eunuch, the eunuch, the eunuch. That's his biggest problem is his eunuchness. Most of humanity was said to despise eunuchs. In verse 30, Philip comes toward this eunuch and he can hear the eunuch reading the scriptures. And of all places, this guy happens to be unfurled at Isaiah 53, which is what? Which is a prophecy where the Messiah is marred beyond recognition for humanity's redemption. What a perfect place to begin a gospel conversation. A marred human reads about a marred victim whose death brings wholeness. And what does he want when Philip comes alongside? He says, could you explain this to me? I'm, I'm dying to know what significance this has for my life. Who's the marred victim? Tell me more about him. Look at verse 30. When Philip ran up to him, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb is silent before, literally in the Hebrew, a lamb is silent before the one who cut him. And so he does not open his mouth. What is going on In this passage, Philip's going to explain it, but the point is this, the spirit crosses boundaries and works redemption. Cush uh, doesn't feature prominently in the Old Testament, but there are a few scattered places where there are cryptic references to God's future plans for the people who live in Cush. There was an ancient song in the Psalms, Psalm 87, and it said someday, people from, and it starts listing these nations where God forsaken nations, it's people from Philistia, our oldest enemy, Babylon, our greatest enemy, and it lists these other places, and then it says, and people from Cush will be brought into the city of Zion and they will be registered as quote, this one was born in Zion. That is, their passports are gonna be changed from born in Babylon to born in Zion. You belong here in God's house, in the holy city, in the holy temple. You were made for Zion. Another Psalm, Psalm 68. Ambassadors will come from Egypt. Cush will stretch out its hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord. If you want to see Psalm 68 fulfilled, look no further than Acts chapter 8 as Cush stretches out his hands to God. I wonder if this Ethiopian eunuch bought Isaiah's scroll because maybe he heard legends of what that scroll said. Maybe he heard rumors that God said something in that scroll about redrawing the boundaries. And this time when God redrew the boundaries, eunuchs wouldn't be on the outside looking in. Eunuchs would actually get to come on into the inner sanctum of God's presence. Legend has it that God says something positive and hopeful about the future of eunuchs. Interestingly, he's in Isaiah 53. About five inches down is Isaiah 56. And you can well imagine, I do, well imagine Philip saying, I want to explain and answer your questions about 53. Then I want to talk about 54 and 55, but inch down to 56. And I want you to read aloud to me verse 3 of Isaiah 56. And then he reads these words. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Can you imagine the joy that leaps out of this man's heart when he finds out, I don't have to travel a thousand miles to worship in the nosebleed section. I can come into the inner sanctum. I can come all the way in and I can get a name that's better than sons and daughters. The glory of the gospel, the threefold yes of the good news of Jesus is the answer to these questions. Number one, can the grace of God find a wayward son? Yes, you haven't gone too far. Every Ephraim present this morning, Jesus calls you, come back home, he's left the light on for you. Can the power of God crush the enemy's plans? Again, yes. A loud affirmation from Acts chapter eight. All who trust in Christ, freedom and more freedom is in your future, is what's in store for you in Jesus Christ. And third, the question is answered, can the blood of Christ bring the outcast in? This guy travels a thousand miles to hear God's praises from a distance until today your shame is no match for the boundary-breaking mercy of God. If you thought, just a clarifying point about Christianity, if you thought Christianity was a religion about a God who builds high walls to keep you from grace, you couldn't be more wrong. No, God crosses boundaries to bring grace to you in Christ. The joy that erupted in Samaria is available. The feast is open. Your ticket is at hand. Come into grace. Be welcomed into the wideness of God's mercy.